What is the experience of gratitude? Where does it come from? What happens inside of the body? What happens specifically inside of the brain when we experience this? And then what happens if we cultivate it as a way of life, cultivate it as a technique, as part of our mindfulness practice? We'll begin by taking a little journey around the world through time and space, looking at the word itself and trying to trace its various origins around the globe. There's limitations to this. I'm not a language scholar, but I have had the opportunity to study some ancient languages. With my limited knowledge and my curiosity, I'll share with you some of the insights that I think reveal a little bit more about this ancient art form and how to actually practice it and what it actually means. When we express gratitude in the English language, we say thank you. If we look to some of our neighboring languages, like Spanish, it's gracias, which means what? We say it means thank you, but it literally means graces. And that's the same in, in, a, in most Romance languages. Grazie means grace in Italian. We also talk about grace when we're talking about Thanksgiving. At Thanksgiving, somebody might say, who wants to say grace? So there is an intimate connection between grace and gratitude. And other cultures and other languages just go straight to grace and just say graces when we say thank you. We'll come back to our word, thank you. But let's, let's stick with graces for a minute. Grace has its origin in, in Latin, the word gratia. And when you look up its original definition in ancient Latin, gratia means unmerited favor, love, or help. Unmerited is the key word there. It means something unearned, unmerited. You didn't earn this. You didn't buy this. What, is, what does that apply to? Anything at all that is helpful to you, favorable to you, or loving or kind towards you, that you didn't buy, that you didn't specifically earn. That's the definition of grace. Usually it has a religious context. It's ultimately coming from the higher power. And that's why gratitude is found as a spiritual practice in virtually all world faiths. Two things here. One, that there's a gift in our life. And two, that it's unmerited. We didn't earn it. So to build the awareness of that grace is one of the origins of gratitude as an art form. If we shift back to, to our language, thank you. So where does thank you come from? Thank you. If you keep saying it, thank you, thank you, it's closer to danka than it is to the Romance languages. So danka and thank you are related. English is not a Romance language. English comes from the northern regions that were part of the Germanic traditions, the Germanic peoples, and many of them followed Norse mythology. Danke comes from Tenkojin and Tankin, which is related to thinking. Think and thank they're so close. And they're, they're related in the way sing and sen or sing and song are related. Think and thank. 
from that tradition, gratitude is about using this to focus on the good. That what you should be thinking about is what you can be thinking about. That's why thinking and thanking are so closely related phonetically in our language and in the Germanic culture. Back into the Romance languages. There's one Romance language that doesn't use grace. French, merci. Why is everything else grace and French is mercy? So mercy comes from mercy. Mercy means what? Like a pardon, like a gift. You didn't earn it. When we talk about have some mercy, doesn't mean you deserve it, but you know, give me a pass on this one. Mercy really relates to grace in that, in that way, in, in the sense that both are unmerited. When I looked a little bit deeper into mercy, I found that it's there in, in ancient Persia. Because so many hundreds of years ago, Persian leaders were sending people over to France to learn about science and art and come back with new knowledge, and now it's spelled in English with the S. So there's some connection to ancient Persia with the Mercy. The other word in Arabic, though, is shukran. I don't know much about Arabic, but I know that shukra is a Sanskrit word also. And in Swahili, it's shukrani. So there's some relationship there. But shukra means light and purity. And probably in this case, it means lucid. So to be clear, is to be thankful, be clear. That's another beautiful description of what it means to be grateful, to, to have that clear awareness. What about the other side of the world, farther east? In, in ancient Sanskrit, the word for gratitude is kritagnya, and that is a compound word, which is composed of kripa, the first half, and jnana. Krupa means grace, and jnana means knowledge. In the Himalayan region, and the traditions that descended from there, or evolved from there, to be knowledgeable of what is given to you, unearned. So we see in different parts of the world, they describe it in slightly different ways. They borrow certain aspects phonetically, and they travel around the globe. In Japan, you know how to say thank you in Japanese if you're my age or older. Why do you know? Because it sticks. <laughs> so how do you say thank you in Japanese? Domo arigato. Mr. Roboto. <laughs> arigato is gratitude. Portuguese say they borrowed it when the Portuguese explorers came to Japan, and that's why it's so close to obrigado. Obrigado means uh, much obliged. But that means I'm indebted to you, because you must have done something for me, or God must have done something for me unearned, unmerited. So that's the cause of the debt. So that's why the word for it in Portuguese is just, I acknowledge my debt. But arigato existed long before 1500. It's found in, in other writings, so it can't come from the Portuguese, at least not entirely. 
Arigato is a compound word like the Sanskrit word. Ari, A-R-I, means to have. And gatu, gato, means difficult, is one description or one translation. To have difficult, that doesn't make sense. But another word for it is rare. And third one is precious. And all three apply. I'll, dis I'll explain. Difficult, rare, precious. Difficult means it's difficult to have this. So I said already means to have. And one meaning of gatu is difficult. It's difficult to experience this. It's not easy to get this, to get this grace. Second, it's rare. It's rare. How is gratitude rare? Gratitude's not rare. What you're thankful for is rare. What you would be thankful for in that moment. Now think about this. What's, what's rare that we could be grateful for? You look up at the sky, you see the sunset. It will never, ever be that way ever again in your life. So only time. It's rare. Yes, there'll be sunsets, but there'll never be that sunset. So I was looking at the sunset last night. There was gold on one half of the sky and purple on the other half. You may have noticed that. So beautiful with the cloud formations. And I was looking with that awareness, having learned about Arigato, thinking it's rare, it's rare. Appreciate it, it's rare. And thirdly, it's precious. Precious because it's rare, because it's difficult to experience. So one literal translation is just expressing it's difficult. It's difficult, difficult to experience. It's rare, it's precious. What else is difficult, rare, and precious? Human life. There is a saying in um, yogic tradition by the sage Shankara that three things are very, very rare in the universe. One is a human, a human being. And if we think about our own planet, most scientists say there are 8.7, approximately 8.7 million species on Earth. So we're one of 8.7 million. That's pretty rare. That's something to be grateful for. So in, in this prayer from Shankara, he's saying to feel gratitude for that because it's so rare. But I just read something recently that said there may be as many as a trillion life forms on Earth when you really start to get into the micro life, it could be more like a trillion, one out of a trillion to be a human being. So that was one. Two, to have the human life, and then secondly, to have some desire to elevate. Because not all of the 8.7 million or trillion species can do that. They don't have the capacity to be self-conscious and then go to a higher state. So the desire for self-actualization or self-realization is number two. Because even though we're one of a trillion, in the Bhagavad Gita, the scripture of the Hindus, it says only one out of a thousand is even interested in who they are. So it's super rare to be a human being, and it's even more rare to be a human being who would want to come to a meeting like this. <laughs> And thirdly, to have access to a teacher, to have access to somebody like Shankaracharya or a Buddha. 
or a great sage like that. Those are the three rarest things. And, you know, people historically had to go great lengths to get access to that knowledge. They had to climb mountains, go into jungles, to hermits' uh, homes in the forest. So you had to be really, really seeking to access some of these ancient, uh, ancient insights and secrets of the seers. Those three things are very, very rare. And everything's rare. Everything else is rare too. So the Buddha was teaching that every moment has a purpose. Every moment, every experience, pleasurable or painful, has something very, very precious to show you, to teach you. And that's why it's thought that the Japanese adopted arigato for thank you, because of the influence of, of Buddhism and treating everything as rare. And that's why in Japanese culture, to my knowledge, they use it a lot. They say that they're very, very uh, polite. But it also may mean that they're very, very mindful, that so many things are precious and rare. We can think about how many more things could we be thankful for? How many more things are rare, starting with our own life? Well, our, our breath. Our breath is the link between us and the life. We need lots of things, but most immediately we need, we need air. And if we don't take another breath, then everything else is gone. It doesn't matter. And that's like two minutes away all the time. So to think that that's happening all the time, and we're always about two minutes away from it all being over if we can't get the next breath, and how much gratitude do we feel for it? Or how much awareness do we even give to it? That's why almost all spiritual foundations emphasize breathing. And the word spirituality has its root word in Latin, spiritus, which means breath. So spirituality in, in its essence is about regulating the breath, appreciating the breath. Your whole play is dependent upon that gift. And it is a gift because even if I'm not aware of it, it'll be given to me anyway. We say I'm breathing, but do we really know how to operate our medulla in the bottom of the brain? That's what's really controlling our breath when we're not thinking of it. Only when we're conscious are we actually drawing our own breath. Otherwise, it's happening as a gift 20,000 times a day. That gives us some insight into what, what this is from the simplest point of view to its very deep spiritual origins. One more, Greek. Karis, C-H, C-H word, or K, depends on uh, the transliteration. And that means grace, but interestingly, that word goes on to mean different things in English language. When you add the plural of karis becomes karismata, which means charisma. So charisma or charismatic has its origin in gratitude. So karismata is the plural form of grace, meaning somebody who knows they have lots of graces, lots of gifts, is the charismatic one. To cultivate charisma originally meant you had to have a gratitude practice. So for the ancient 
Greek philosophers, that was a high art form. To really be able to count your blessings meant to be keenly aware of what you have access to. To know what's been given to you. And if you're aware of that, you will have an aura of magnetism. So now we throw around this word very liberally about charisma and apply it to anybody that can draw a crowd or has some talent or is charming. But originally it meant somebody who is really, really grateful. And because of that, there was an energy about that person that was really inviting and safe and peaceful and spiritual. And it still makes sense today that if I can see the good in others, surely they want to be around me. If you blame me, I don't want to be around that. Nobody wants to be blamed. As soon as people start blaming us, we want to fight them or we want to retreat from them. If I'm not going to blame you, then you feel safer around me. So naturally, the dynamic is created through gratitude. Gratitude means I can always redirect my awareness to what's good about you, to what's positive, and to see the light in you and then try to see only that. And of course, people are going to feel drawn to that, that energy. There's an emerging abundance of gratitude research. If you'd like to know more about psychological studies into gratitude, you could just look up Robert Emmons. And he's written lots of articles and done lots of studies about the wellness associated with gratitude. And he has a, a journal of positive psychology, a scientific journal that explains a lot of these studies. So I'll share some of these. But what we find through all of these in terms of the wellness is that it lifts depression to a great extent. It helps people sleep better, lowers blood pressure, helps with digestion and other metabolic processes in the body become more efficient. People are happier. They're more likely to exercise. They're more likely to take care of their body. They're more likely to be at a healthy weight. So all, these, all kinds of things are associated with this. There's been MRI experiments with subjects while they're having the feeling or experience of gratitude. And we find that two areas of the brain specifically are affected and developed. One is the medial prefrontal cortex. That just means the area behind your forehead, the frontal lobe, where the two hemispheres meet. And that particular area is involved with empathy. Empathy, memory, and stress relief. Well, when people are stressed out, what are they thinking about? What's not good? People are stressed out, they're worried about the uncertainty, about all the things that could go wrong or that have been going wrong. And when this area develops in the brain, people can see what's good. It becomes easier. And it needs to be practiced because we all inherit to some extent a brain that's really good at being negative. And this manifests in psychology in what's called the negativity bias. It's why if I go for a job review and I get 99 positive remarks and one negative remark, what do I end up thinking about or give the most weight to? The one negative thing, even though I had 99 positive remarks. So that's called negativity bias. So why is it so hard for people to be positive? Why isn't there more wisdom? 
Why isn't it? Why is that something that has to be cultivated? Why wouldn't we just be naturally inclined to think positive as a species? It has to do with evolution. Two people long ago coming to a cave before homes. Two people come to a cave hundreds of thousands of years ago, and one says, "This looks perfect. Let's move in." And the other one goes, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! We don't know what's in there. There could be." A tiger, a bear, something dangerous could be filled with snakes. I ain't going in there. Well, according to Darwin and natural selection, this guy goes in and eventually gets eaten. And your ancestor, the pessimist, being able to assume the worst, being able to worry, to to avoid, to activate your fight-flight instinct, to run away from every possible hazard, just so you could live long enough to have offspring, and pass on that predisposition. And after millions of years, we're hardwired to see the negative. We're really good at it, and because we're really good at it, we do it a lot. And when we do it a lot, we get better at it. And so we're up at night with worries. We're not up at night counting our blessings. I never hear people say, "I just couldn't sleep because I have so many good things going on." <laughs> that would be nice. So that's why. There is a spiritual practice of gratitude, because spirituality is the art of evolving faster than, however million, many millions of years it's going to take, for our species to deal with stress differently. We only deal with stress in one way biologically, danger. We deal with all stress in the body as danger. If you just pay attention to your body with mindfulness, the next time you're stressed out, you will observe. That your body is preparing to deal with danger. Once you have that awareness, you'll immediately start becoming less stressed because you'll realize you're not in danger. The awareness alone, which is part of what's developed through the gratitude practice in the prefrontal cortex, the awareness alone already starts to reduce emotion by 50% and activity in the emotion centers of the brain by 50%. If you could just name your feeling when you're stressed. You would reduce your stress by 50%. Because what's happening when we're stressed is our bodies are preparing to deal with danger. It's a new thing in human history to have stress that's not dangerous. For millions of years, stress was not a job interview, <laughs> traffic, you know, social media. <laughs> stress was there's a predator chasing me. So this is why. We struggle to solve problems when we're stressed out because the stress is associated with danger, which only gives you two options: run or fight. That's all a person can think to do. And it's interesting when I'm on a plane and we hit some turbulence, and I look around the the airplane, I see everybody stop problem solving. Someone's working on his resume, on his laptop. Somebody's sending an email, doing something creative. Or like me writing a song, turbulence. Close the laptop. Sit, rock a little bit. I just want to get out of here. I just want to land. I just want to get back to my family. What, what, what about solving your finances? What about fixing your resume? Why don't you want to do that anymore? Because all I can think about is getting away. So when we're stressed, how can we solve our problems? We can't solve problems because when we're stressed, our mind is not clear. It's preparing for danger, and that's exactly what we need when we're in danger. Nobody needs to work on their finances when they're running from a tiger. 
And your body knows this. So not only does it give you less intelligence, because you don't need intelligence when you're running. You just need to be fast. You need to be faster. So all the blood goes from the brain to your legs and to your arms. That's why we can't solve our problems. If we can have awareness though and reduce that stress, we can solve our problems. Only through clarity can we see more options. And this is known as the broaden and build theory. To be able to solve problems and become resilient, you have to have gratitude, which leads to positive feeling. Why? Because when you're positive, you can see possibilities. When you're negative, you can only see two, get away or get even. Get away or become aggressive. When you're positive, you can see lots of possibilities. So this was identified in an experiment with subjects watching videos that were of five kinds. One that induces or elicits feelings of anger, one fear, one neutral, content is totally neutral, doesn't have emotional context, and then two positive ones, happiness and love. After the subjects watch these five videos, the researcher asks them to write down what they thought to do. So it gives, gives each person a notebook. She, Barbara Fredrickson is the researcher. So if you look up Barbara Fredrickson, you'll find research about gratitude and the brawn and build theory. So the people in fear and in anger only put one or two things. I'd punch that guy in the face or I would just get out of there, something like that. So just two. Neutral, three, four things, and happiness and love, the whole page was filled with what they would do. Because they could think of many things to do, if they were doing those things, like in childhood, I feel happy in the forest, like I did growing up. So I'm climbing trees, I'm playing with friends, I'm using my imagination, I'm the king of the forest, I create a game, I play hide and seek, I discover things, I become more athletic, which then leads to skills that last long beyond the feeling of being happy. So that's how we solve problems, by first showing our body that we're not in danger. If we are in danger, we just need to be fast or we need to be stronger. And that's exactly what our brain does for us. So that's one area. Second area of the brain, is in the limbic system, which is part of the, the circuit of regulating all bodily functions. And there's one area in particular that is activated and strengthened, that's called the hypothalamus. And in MRI studies of patients or subjects feeling grateful, they see that area of the brain lighting up. Why is it lighting up? So the experiment that was done was through the University of Southern California. They have the largest collection of video testimonies of survivors of the Holocaust. So the gratitude researchers thought, let's go through all this footage and extract the breathtaking stories, which they found, of generosity in the concentration camps. And then, they transferred these experiences over to the subjects by explaining it, by describing it, by helping them through, through footage and scenes to put themselves empathically in that scenario. And then the generosity comes. So 
scenario might be you're on a winter march in the camp, freezing, and some other prisoner gives you their coat. So things like this. And meanwhile, they're watching the brain while the person feels deep, deeper and deeper appreciation through these experiments. And the area that's getting stronger and getting more blood is the hypothalamus, which then translates to better health because the hypothalamus regulates the pituitary gland, which regulates all glands, all endocrine functioning, and specifically sleep and digestion. So think about this for a moment. If I pause to say grace, and I don't just do it mechanically before a meal, I actually think about the gift within the meal. Yeah, I might have bought it, but I didn't grow the food. And even if I bought it and there's no good harvest because there wasn't enough rain, then I can't buy it, or it's going to cost three times as much, which sometimes happens with almonds and avocados depending on the drought in California. So even if I have the money, I, there still has to be a gift. And if I'm really aware of it, hypothalamus is getting stronger and so is your digestion. What an amazing thought that to actually be grateful before a meal prepares you biologically to assimilate the nutrition from the food. And then we get better sleep. Now we get better sleep because the hypothalamus is stronger, but we also get better sleep because when we feel grateful, we're more relaxed. When we think about what's positive, our bodies assume that there's no danger. When we're thinking about the negatives, we're continuing that legacy of fear. Uncertainty, what's going to happen? This could all go, go wrong. And then we can't fall asleep. So on the one hand, there's an anatomical explanation in the brain, a neuroanatomical explanation that the hypothalamus is stronger, which regulates cycles throughout the body, which helps us sleep. In a very practical sense, if I'm being grateful at the end of my day and I'm thinking about what's good in my life, it relaxes me. Normally, I said, people are up with racing thoughts about worries. Prefrontal cortex grows stronger and with awareness, we can regulate our emotions. We can ascend to the higher levels of the pyramid, self-esteem, peace of mind, and on to self-actualization, total fulfillment, enlightenment, getting ourselves in alignment with uh, our true purpose or our highest purpose. And then the hypothalamus, the limbic system, which regulates all these bodily functions. It was shown in a research study of after 9-11, among the families affected by the tragedy, that those who did not have symptoms of depression scored much higher on gratitude assessments on the psychological assessment. Similarly, in Vietnam vets, those with the lowest uh, incidence of post-traumatic stress disorder score the highest on gratitude assessments. So gratitude has been shown to be a factor in building resilience. I said at the beginning that it's about bringing your awareness and all these languages and all these cultures describe it as bringing your awareness to what's good. And the three core aspects of mindfulness are openness, curiosity, and flexibility. So this pertains to the flexibility piece of mindfulness. The capacity to direct our awareness to different phenomena within our present experience. 
So gratitude is an attitude of taking that awareness through flexibility, like a magnifying glass, and pointing it here. Yes, I'm in pain right now. Yes, I've lost something. But where within this field is the opportunity? There it is. And then I focus there. That's what gratitude is. That's what mindfulness is. Choosing where you want to direct your lens, your perception. So there are three things to do to practice this in daily life, to make it part of a way of life if you're so inclined. Three A's. The first A is awareness. To make moments in your life to pause and scan your environment for the gifts or gifts. You can actually designate a time, sunset. At sunset, I'll look at the gift. I'll listen to the song of the birds. And because I didn't buy any of those things, I'll do number two, appreciate. So first is awareness, scan, notice. Two, appreciate, which means mindfully engage in it. Mindfully draw your attention into it. And sometimes this means actually saying thank you in one of those languages we talked about, or domo, arigato. Domo means indeed, by the way. Indeed, it is rare. That's beautiful, isn't it? Indeed, this sunset is rare. Engage in it, so appreciate, number two. Enjoy it. If I'm aware of something, but I don't enjoy it, I'm not going to get the grateful experience. Another thing we can do to enjoy it is smile at it. I can smile at a bird. Try it sometime. Listen to a bird and smile. It feels amazing. We don't smile enough. If you're smiling, the brain thinks I'm not in danger. If you're not in danger, don't need to keep producing stress hormones. So by smiling, I communicate through my body safety. I can say it all I want or think about all I want, and it may not happen. But when I breathe deeply and I smile big, I complete that happiness circuit. And that's why there's real scientific wisdom behind the adage, grin and bear it. Studies show that when patients are asked to write thank you to somebody once a week for four weeks, compared to people who don't do that, but get all the same treatment. And this was done with 300 patients. Six months later, their mental health is significantly better, even if everything else in their treatment is the same. And if you ask people to write about their negative experiences in a journal, instead of writing a thank you to someone, it's not very good. What we find is when we use more negative words, we create more biological turmoil. We have to challenge ourselves to use more positive language. There's also research that shows the more we complain, the more our brain shrinks. It's dangerous. It's dangerous work. But there's a difference between complaining and problem solving. I'm not talking about letting people walk all over you. But we can respond without complaining. We can respond by problem solving and staying wise and staying true to our values and things like that. So there's, there's really interesting studies with, with the gratitude expression and the words used. When we use the word we more in our gratitude, I got some, something. I won something, but it's not just me, it's we. Because if my parents didn't give me a good environment to grow up in and 
and love and support, then I wouldn't have that, this opportunity. It's we, we did it. But when everything's going good, it's I. When things aren't going good, it's they. Success has many fathers, failure has none. So if we want to be grateful, we need to use the language of we, the inclusive language, the positive words, and reduce our negative words. Number three, accounting, a record. Awareness, appreciation, and accounting. If I don't write down what I'm grateful for, I might not remember it. We don't have to do this forever, but we do have to do it for at least a week, and that's our challenge tonight. To start or continue, if you've already been doing this, a gratitude journal that's going to be different than a gratitude list. Gratitude list is when I just write down what I'm grateful for. Gratitude journal is going to be three experiences you're grateful for in the course of your day. And it has to be written down, not just thought about and reflected upon. Why? Because if I write this down, and just three, three is enough to rewire the brain in one week. If I write down three things, something special happens. By writing, I have to operate my arm and my hand. And what part of the brain does that? The motor cortex. But the motor cortex is operating in communication with my memory centers. It's writing about what happened that was positive in the past, earlier in the day. So the motor cortex, you can see, is sending signals between it and the memory centers in the hippocampus and in the prefrontal cortex. So multiple areas are communicating in a new way. Once I've written it, I'm looking at it, which is in my occipital lobe, which is communicating with the memory and the motor cortex creating a symphony of gratitude. To just think about it is just the memory. Intelligence is not thought to be a bigger brain, it's thought to be more communication among centers within the brain. So I think of intelligence like a piano. I don't need a bigger piano to be musical, I need to make new connections that I have never done before. And somebody can sit down at any piano and start going and making music. Not because the piano is longer, but because the melodies are all there. All the melodies of all the songs we love are all there. But the connection hasn't been made. And when we do activities like this, we form new connections. And the end result is really amazing. So if we do this for one week, Here's what the research tells us. After one week of doing this sincerely, subjects would report on average feeling 1% happier. That's not too exciting, but it's something. If they, it's the right direction, that's right. If they stop there and never do it again and are assessed again one month later, they're 5% happier. If they never do it again and are assessed six months later, they're 9% happier. And it goes on for the rest of their life. Why? Because in as little as one to two weeks, the brain is rewired. Those communications that have never happened in that rare, precious, difficult way are solidified. 
a new pathway is formed in the brain. And even after one day of me talking about this with patients, they will say things like, I couldn't think of three tonight, last night. Okay, well, hopefully you're paying attention today for the gift. And then they are. All of a sudden, they have to engage in a whole new way. Maybe in that day they still don't notice. Day three, okay, can you create an experience for yourself? Stronger internal locus of control. I don't have to wait for the gift. I can access it by going out to the sunset, going to the park, going to the place I love, meeting my friend, watching my breath. So it rewires the brain and it strengthens the prefrontal cortex and it supports our evolution from the world of danger of our ancestors to this golden opportunity to meditate in peace and safety now in our homes. But our brains aren't ready for that. We have to practice, we have to cultivate it, we have to grow, grow ourselves because we're still part of the legacy of fear and danger. And we run around in that state and we can't solve our problems because we can't see solutions. Problem solving is about making decisions. Very difficult to make decisions when you can only see two, fight, flight. So we have to help our bodies evolve and we have to be compassionate with our bodies because when we're stressed out, all our bodies know historically is danger. So it's giving you adrenaline, it's giving you tension, preparing you to do what you need. And we're going, oh God, not now. I can't deal with more tension in my stomach or more knots in my, in my chest. And we're invalidating our own bodies. So, so if we practice this gratitude journal, we'll complete that circuit. I might be aware and I might enjoy something, but if I don't remember it at the end of the day, the world is still a very dark place. I have to do all three. Those are the three A's. Awareness, appreciate, and account for it later. And it needs to happen at the end of the day so that the last thing I'm engaging in is what is good.